Now, though, on the line, I am joined by Professor Kevin Clements, Chair and Foundation Director of the National Centre for Peace and Conflict Studies at here at Otago University. Morena to you. Morena to you too. Okay. How are we today, sir? Sorry? How are we today? Oh, we're fine. Yeah, we're good. Yeah, it's good. That's good. Right, we're talking about um, Marie Lebeda and her... Um, Archibald Baxter Memorial Peace Lecture that she is giving tomorrow entitled Informed Dissent Challenging State Secrecy. So I guess um, we should talk about the, those two names I've mentioned, um, Marie Ledbetter herself and Archibald Baxter. Um, can you give us a little bit of background on um, both of them, please? Yes. Well, Marie Ledbetter was the daughter of Elsie and Jack Locke, who were very, very prominent New Zealand dissidents um, in Christchurch. Elsie um, uh, was a long-time radical, and her mother, in fact, as uh, you mentioned uh, to me earlier on, was uh, very active in the suffragette movement. Um, and Elsie and Jack were... Um, so she was born, born, born into a, a very radical household. Her mm. parents were both um, communists, um, and uh, Jack remained a communist for his whole entire life, but Elsie actually renounced the Communist Party um, after the invasion of Hungary, but both of them were, were on the radical end of the left-right spectrum. Um, both of them were also really um, critics in conscience from where they were. Uh, Jack spent his whole entire life working in the freezing works, but he was a very well-educated and um, informed person who um, you know, was, was able to kind of really do quite very sophisticated analyses of working life and conditions and what needed to happen for um, people to um, live carefree and safe lives in, in, in the workplace. Elsie mm -hmm. um, was a long-time advocate for women's rights and for women's reproductive rights and um, uh, and for women's role in the, in the public sphere. And uh, both, both of them were, were intellectuals. Their house in Christchurch was, um, was always a... a favorite destination spot for um you know political activists and intellectuals and mm -hmm. uh, writers elsie was a very prominent new zealand uh, historian and children's writer um and uh, jack published lots of lots of polemic so it was in that context that myrie was born and um so in a way she you know she <laughs> informed sent was was there right at right at, the, right at her birth yes she didn't really have a choice. Really. <laughs> he had very little choice about <laughs> being a radical. And her brother was Keith Locke, who used to yes. be the um, Green Party spokesperson on uh, foreign affairs and defence. Of course, of course. Um, so, yeah, rich um, background. And I, I often wondered, and I know this is quite slightly off topic, but you were talking about her parents um, being... Um, communists because um, we know a lot about the communist movement in, in, in America and, and the Senate's crackdown and the hunt for communists and, and, and the red peril you know what was it like in New Zealand it was pretty intense as well actually and communists were under a, a lot of surveillance from um, the security intelligence service um, I remember staying at the Locks house um, in Christchurch for example and uh, this was back in the 1960s and uh, it was clear that they were under quite a lot of both um, human surveillance and uh, and probably um, wiretapping and so forth. So they were they were on a, a watch list um, uh, and considered sort of dangerous radicals um, in the New Zealand context. So it was it wasn't um, it wasn't easy to be a communist. Uh, and it was certainly not easy in the 
uh, in the social environment of the 50s and 60s to mm. be, you, you know, on that part of the political spectrum. Indeed. So, okay, um, so that's Murray. Uh, what about Archibald Baxter? Arch- I mean, Archibald Baxter was a, uh, was a, was a Brighton farmer um, who, along with his brothers, um, refused to um, be conscripted into uh, the First World War um, and refused to put on the uniform. Uh, and was uh, eventually dispatched to um, France, where he was, he suffered all kinds of torture and uh, mm. and punishment, along with uh, a number of others from Otago and elsewhere, who just refu- refused to disobey um, uh, you know, the authorities who had the entire world at that time sort of uh, plunging into uh, you know, main- meanless, meaningless, and mindless destruction. Yeah. Um, so, so James said, uh, Archibald had a. Um, um, you know, a, a, you know, extremely traumatic time. I mean, he was put on the front lines, and you know, in, um, as punishment, um, you know, suffered a very severe mental breakdown, um, and came back and wrote a very important um, um, piece track called "We Will Not Cease," which was, again, in a sense, picking up on um, what I've just been talking about with Myri, picking up on that tradition of the importance of being able to resist authority when authority was making stupid and um, harmful decisions. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, of course, his wife was quite prominent as well. Yes, Millicent, Millicent Baxter was... Uh, uh, she was the, the daughter of a, a very prominent um, um, uh, academic from um, um, Christchurch, um, Macmillan Brown. So she was originally Millicent Macmillan Brown and was expected to... You know, marry into a very prominent intellectual family, but she fell in love with Archibald. She fell in love with his story, and she really admired and uh, had huge admiration for his heroism and willingness to resist authority. And of course, both of them produced um, uh, three boys, and um, uh, the most famous of whom was probably um, James K. Baxter. Yes, yes. So I mean, these these families—that's amazing. Yeah, no, these families. We really can see how important it is. That, um, yeah. To, to have groups, I mean, families like this who are willing to uh, maintain a, a position of tension with government authority and with those in power, and uh, and who are you know the real critics and consciences, mm-hmm. and who have a you know a, a moral compass on what's happening, uh, and who are willing to resist when resistance is called for. Mm-hmm. Uh, for for my mind, because I you know I'm I'm uh, I'm not going to pretend I know a, a lot about this stuff. For my mind, though, um, New Zealand's best known anti-war movements, of course, the anti-Vietnam protests. Uh, and in many ways, I guess our anti-nuclear stance as well, um, you know, could that lead into the end of the ANZUS, ANZUS alliance and the like? Um, you know, so what are, you know, where have we been within um, pushing back against the state and anti-war movements? Well, there's always been a tradition. I mean, right, right, right back from the Boer War time. Actually, I mean, the Boer War, the First World War, the Second World War, all, uh, the Korean War, all, um, all had uh, their opponents. Um, people who felt there were other ways in which um, those particular conflicts could be resolved. Mm-hmm. Um, all of them had dissidents who were arrested and, and uh, in the case of the First and Second World War in prison for quite lengths of time, including my own father, actually, mm-hmm. who was a conscientious objector as well. Um, so uh, the, the Vietnam War movement, uh, however, was probably the most um, um, pervasive and uh, large-scale um, movement against war in New Zealand um, because, it, it, you know, on so many counts it was 
not only unpopular as a war, it was just wrong and it was wrong-headed and it was based on faulty and false assumptions and, and it was a disastrous war. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that, that, um, you know, that really galvanized uh, the New Zealand population across the left-right spectrum. In the past, uh, a lot of opposition to war had been you know, the, the um, preserve of the left. Um, but that one was really a kind of uh, across the spectrum. And the anti-nuclear movement was the same. I mean, it was successful because both of them were successful in the end because they, uh, because they were um, broad-based and cut across class and cut across political lines uh, and, um, and mobilized you know, large sections of the population who said, well, you know, there's got to be a better way. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, uh, Marie is looking at the way New Zealand anti-war activities have been informed by high-quality research. Um, can you expand on what that what you, what you mean by that? Well, what, you know, one of the things that we've discovered in in all of this work is that um, I mean, it's, it's one thing to have a sort of a moral objection to war and just sort of come out on the streets and say, "Well, I'm opposed to war." Mm-hmm. Um, but what's what's actually much more compelling is to do the research and to get the evidence. Um, that underlines just why it's not only immoral but you know politically, um, you know, useless and um, and likely to likely to boomerang on those who perpetrate it. So, you know, right through the 60s and 70s, for example, there's been a tradition which I'm sure Mari will highlight, um, that uh, you know the the, the best um, uh, anti-war movements have have been those that have been you know underpinned by you know solid solid research. I mean Owen Wilkes, for example, was a wonderful example of this. He was a guy who um, you know, gave his life really to exposing um, the connection between different kinds of military installations and um, the Five Eyes projects and. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know he knew more than you, anybody needed to know about missiles and weapons and and so forth. And so he was able to utilise that evidence to argue um, on their own terms against the military, who you know would try and um, you know bluff and bluster their way into uh, persuading us that they knew best about what was in our in our better interests. Mm-hmm. I, I guess um, there's some modern examples. Um the fight against the case of war to go to Iraq, you know, I mean, that was blundered from, from the start, from, from both sides, you know, the false evidence and, and the like, but also uh, recently in New Zealand with what was going on in Afghanistan and oh, yeah. a particular yeah. battle um, and what, come out, what came out there. And um, uh, Well, and Nicky Hager and Thompson's yeah. book, I mean, is a good example of what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. And Nicky himself was in, in that, um, um, you know, Wilkes type of tradition as well. I mean, made a point of of you know trying to get on top of um, you know both the, the military information and evidence that we needed, um, the politics of it all. They they both made wonderful use of the U.S. Freedom of Information Act, you know, so that they could they could you know so that we we knew in advance that you know what we were being told by politicians during the Vietnam War was you know the exact opposite of what of of what was driving um, foreign policy in the states at the time. And actually, if you look at something like Ken Burns' recent documentary on Vietnam, I mean, you begin to see something of the, um, you know, the duplicity and chicanery of uh, official statements on the war, mm-hmm. which meant that, you know, the movement itself, you know, understood better than those who were promoting the propaganda for, for the war. Um, just what was happening. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, Kentucky's been involved for, for years. I mean, it was the early 90s when he was exposing some stuff that was going on at Waipori. 
um, yeah. the spy bases there. Um, so yeah, he's he's a great example. Can you give us any more modern examples of of, of dissidents and challenging of state security and secret? Um, well, uh, you know, I think uh, all of the uh, you know the Snowden and um, and so forth and and the WikiLeaks um, um, revelations around uh, you know all the way in which intelligence is gathered. I mean that's that's continuing that example. I mean that's been you know Snowden and Chelsea Manning have been condemned by the establishment for you know being subversive and so forth but in fact they were they did us all a, a service by revealing just the extent to which we were under surveillance and the ways in which governments gathered information about individuals and groups and organizations all around the world and how these were used mm-hmm. um, and so you know that's another I think you know a pretty contemporary example of of the way in which um, you know, solid research-based evidence, you know, enables us to then say, well, you know, we've got to be really careful here. The question is, you know, who, it's the same, the same as that sort of um, ancient Roman challenge, I mean, who guards the guardians here? Yeah, yeah. Um, the state sets itself up as the guardians of society, but in fact, you know, they're fallible, they're, they're human, they're, uh, you know, and, and, and just yesterday, I mean, I, I have great objections to the government's decision to continue the deployment in Iraq, for example. And um, the evidence for that is just uh, flimsy as hell. Um, and, and you know, we need, to, we need to kind of critique it. I mean, it's not enough just for Ron Marks and others to say, well, I went and was, uh, you know, persuaded by the Iraqi prime minister when, the, you know, levels of violence are going up and there's a, you know, we're on the verge of another major Shia sunny confront violent and bloody confrontation you know what's our role in that going to be indeed indeed um yeah i mean and i, I guess when you mentioned snowden and chelsea manning um it's you know they're using their techniques against them as well you know getting the documents all, all digital data because um you look at vietnam and there was people on the streets and that's how things were done then it was mass movement and mass protests and you know so has it changed a lot through the years the way that we you know our, our dissidents and how we we put it out there well i think i think um uh, you know the, the um the internet has uh, in a way given us all um greater capacity to kind of make sure that this information is circulated rapidly and dramatically all around the world immediately it's discovered i mean so we you know this i think that um modern modern communications mean that we have a much greater capacity now to let everybody know exactly what's happening so people can make up their own minds um uh, we're always going to need the movement so we're going to need yeah. people to come out and just say uh, you know this is not okay i mean what you know how do we how you know how is how are Americans really going to control control you know a lunatic in the White House you know um, if the checks and balances fail and you know he ends up doing something really crazy well they have to they have to surround the White House I mean they have to just say this is not okay you know <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> his but, I mean, levers of power have got to be removed from him so has um, you know the internet allowed us to get the information out there but has it also um, just turned protest into a click movement? Where we just, you know, well, and that's, has that's that. the danger. That's that's the real danger. If it's just a click movement and doesn't represent um, any real commitment on the part of those who are, um, you know, who are worried by what's happening, then that's a, that's a challenge because, you know, we're not going to we're not going to change things just by clicking things. You change things by disinvesting. You change things by boycotting, by challenging, by resisting. And that involves, you know, blood, sweat, and tears. It involves research. It involves utilization of institutions for your for your cause um, and so forth 
you know, and that's that. You're absolutely right. That's the danger of the internet that it in, induces um, a rather passive and and um, inactive uh, mobilization. Mm. Um, people feel that you know, if they just sign the petition, they've done it. Yeah. Um, you know, but that's a sort of a diminishing currency. You've got to sort of sign the petition and file a, a complaint in the court and and follow it up with. Um, you know, demonstrations in the streets and political parties that will take your uh, cause up and so forth. Indeed, indeed. Well, um, we've run out of time, so I have to leave it there, but thank you for joining me. The, um, uh, the lecture's tomorrow night at yes. uh, 5... Uh, I think, what's it? 5.30. 5.30, Archway 1, isn't it? Uh, Archway 2. Archway 2, sorry. I've got here. Um, yes, uh, so tomorrow the 20th, uh, 5.30 through to 7, Archway 2, um, Marie Ledbetter, uh, informed dissent, challenging state secrecy. Um, once again, thank you so much. No, for that's, me. That's, cheers, all the best. Pleasure. Look forward to seeing people there. Cheers. Indeed. Bye. Cheers.